Let's pray together. Father, as we have sung and asked that you would speak, now we pray again uh, that you will reveal to us uh, your purposes, that you will accomplish them, and uh, that we would be changed by the truth that we encounter. Uh, we, we understand that to be like Christ means to share in his sufferings, and so we pray that uh, in whatever way you uh, prepare us for suffering, that we would not shy away from it, but rather that we would seek Christ-likeness even in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter 21. Acts 21. If you're uh, using a Bible from this room, you'll find Acts 21 on page 796. So, page 796 and... uh, You'll want to be looking at this with us as we as we go along. This is a um, this is a good habit to begin to get into is to follow along in Scripture when uh, when it's being taught. So I encourage you to do that. So Acts twenty one is where we'll begin. Um, every every family kind of has its own things that they do, maybe out of habit or just that is especially. Enjoyable for them. Uh, mine is no different. One of the things that my siblings and I enjoy doing together is uh, to have these pretty informal and yet sometimes often heated debates. And um, it's usually not even planned. We're not. It's not like okay, we're gonna meet for dinner. Come ready to discuss this topic. It just sort of <coughs> happens um, pretty naturally. We'll get on something. And people pick sides and will argue our points. And I, I guess I kind of like to do that with most people. So some of you are smiling because I think we've probably done that. But um, it, it especially happens that this, this usually always happens with my siblings. So sometimes it'll be something, you know, controversial. Oftentimes it's just something very preferential. But we'll argue it heatedly nonetheless. So an example, uh, this past Sunday we were, we were at lunch. Uh, it was Judah's birthday, so Judah, I'm very proud of him, chose to go to Five Guys. Yes. Yeah, what a guy. And uh, and then we went to Target and saw Haley and their family, that's true. Um, so we're at lunch, and uh, the discussion, the debate for this week, and, and it came up in a very roundabout way, but we were talking about tattoos. All right, we're talking about tattoos. Maddie... Uh, Asked if this was going to be convicting. I don't think it is. But um, some people have really strong opinions about tattoos. Now I understand for most of you, you're young enough. You're like, tattoos, what's the big deal? Generally, I, I mostly agree. Um, and yet, yet for those of us that are a little bit older, um, tattoos is like a really kind of touchy subject for some people. And at least it has been in the past. So anyways, we're talking about tattoos. And my brother-in-law, my sister's... Uh, husband, took this stance. He said, I would never get a tattoo. And so we're all really interested in his reasoning for why he would never get a tattoo. And here was his philosophy. He said, because I have a very strict personal policy to actively avoid pain. It was Colby. Yeah. 
So that's, that's his philosophy. I have a very strict personal policy to actively avoid pain. That's a good reason, I think, to, to avoid tattoos. I actually probably would fall in the same boat. Now, uh, yeah, and, and to, pay, to pay to be uh, drawn on with a needle uh, and, and have, it la- <laughs> excuse me, have it last forever. More power to you. All right. <coughs> excuse me. I bring up that uh, quote about actively avoiding pain because uh, for many of us, that actually is our stance. Maybe not so much on tattoos, but we try actively and intentionally to avoid pain and discomfort as much as possible. Would you agree with that? Most of you don't like to be put in uh, positions where you are going to be hurt, either physically or otherwise, or where you're going to be made to be uncomfortable or, uh, or any such thing. However, I think it's important for us to recognize that... <coughs> I'm going <coughs> to apparently fight a cough through this whole thing, so forgive me. But uh, we would, it would be good for us to recognize that, uh, to some extent, pain is a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. Now, we don't need to, nor should we seek to magnify it unnecessarily. So I, I don't mean that because you follow Jesus, that you must find some way to invite persecution into your life. That's not what I mean. Or invite people's, you know, draw people's ire, so to speak. That's not really the point of Christianity. However, uh, if the New Testament gives us any sort of indication, I think it does, it's that to be, to be brought to some sort of um, discomfort and possibly pain or suffering of some kind is just kind of normal for Christianity. And it's not just that way in the New Testament. Believe it or not, that's actually true of most Christians in the world. North America, uh, like modern North America, is the exception to every historic rule ever when, in that regard. Okay, so if, if, this, if this is normal... Uh, it, it, is, it can be normal for us, but it's not, no, it's not the normal perspective of, of Christians forever. I think it's important for us to understand that. So what we're going to examine tonight is to notice that Jesus' sufferings, all right, the sufferings of Jesus, often set the pattern for the way his followers will also suffer. So if you and I are to be Jesus' followers, it, it, it can be normal for, uh, that we should expect some sort of suffering on account of of Jesus, yeah, I was going to say, you ladies that just came in, if you want to get a, a bulletin and a pen there, that would be that would be great. You could probably follow along a little easier. Uh, so here we are in Acts twenty one, and we are right in the middle of the encounter uh, in Acts of the life of what man? You remember, Paul the apostle, right? And uh, Paul was a converted Pharisee, so a Jewish religious leader, converted to Christ. Miraculously, we'll kind of um, revisit his conversion tonight. He became then a missionary and a church planter and a preacher uh, in, in really most parts of the known inhabited world of his time. And in Acts 21, uh, he is intending to uh, make a trip to Jerusalem. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He intends to get there somehow. And so as he goes to Jerusalem, and, and as he arrives in Jerusalem, we notice certain patterns of suffering in his life that for him were just a normal part of what it means to be surrendered 
to the Lord's will. So my, what, the challenge I want to get across tonight is, one, for you and I to be completely surrendered to the Lord's will, whatever that might be, and to understand that being surrendered to the Lord's will probably means a certain pattern of sufferings in our lives that, again, uh, were, that Jesus set the precedent for and that we see in Paul's life also. So we're going to look at eight of those patterns. You've got your notes, and uh, I invite you to follow along and use this as a discussion guide for small groups. So what are these patterns? Uh, I think there are eight of them. So number one, we see uh, the first pattern in Paul's life was purposeful discipleship. Purposeful discipleship. We mentioned that he determined to go to Jerusalem. So we actually would get this from uh, from back in chapter 20. So this was what I believe Mr. Grieve would have covered with you all last week. So look back just for a point of reference uh, at Acts 20 and verse 22, where Paul says to these uh, to the crowd there, he says, Now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy uh, sorry, lost my place, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every, in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay, that's, that's a remarkable statement. He wants to go to Jerusalem, and he says, I don't really know what's going to happen, except that it's going to be really hard. I'll go to prison, and I will be afflicted once I get there. That's all I know, but I know that I have to get there nonetheless. Now, most of us, if we know we're going to go to a place, and once we get there, we're likely to be opposed to the point of being thrown in jail and afflicted in other ways, how many of you would consider changing your minds? All right, if we're honest, most of us would at least consider it, right? I think we would. Yet, he's determined to go there. So, he's on his way uh, to Jerusalem from uh, where he was in chapter 20, and that was Miletus. And on the way, he uh, does some pit stops where he visits some old friends. So look down in chapter 21 and verse 3, Acts 21, 3, he says, When we'd come in the sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria, landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. All right, let's think about what's happening in those verses. Uh, he says, we're making these stops along the way. We visit our old friends. And what are the friends urging him to not do? Go to Jerusalem. And what's the very thing he says he needs to do? Go to Jerusalem. Now, why do you think that they're telling him to not go? Exactly. All these hard things that he already knows are coming, uh, are going, he's going to encounter them there. And, and they say, you know what? Just stay here or maybe rethink your plan. Just stay away from Jerusalem. That's kind of what they are urging him to do there. Uh, skip down to verse 8 in this section. You notice he um, some of the other stops he makes. Verse 8, he says, On the next day we departed, came to Caesarea. Uh, we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. That's kind of, uh, that phrase stood out to me. Uh, daughters who prophesied. Normally we think of, and maybe it's just the um, what's sort of common in our circles, so to speak, that like, oh, women aren't supposed to preach, prophesy, whatever. Um, I think this phrase actually underscores the importance of women and girls in 
certain kinds of ministry. So like whereas normally you might hear it emphasized, we might emphasize the things that women can't do in the church. Uh, here I think Scripture gives one of many records of women teaching and serving, and so the church needs women and girls. Okay, I think the, the, the Scripture here affirms that. So ladies, I want you to know that your part here is as important as anyone's. Now, go to, chat, go to verse um, 10, and there's, a, there's another prophet that they meet. Look at verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And verse 12 says, When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So again, they're, they are pleading with Paul not to, not to do this. Um, and yet, look at his response, starting in verse 13. What does he say? He answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Why? Not just for any reason, but why? At the end of verse 14, For the name of the Lord Jesus. For the name of the Lord Jesus. That was his primary motive. And verse 14 says, Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. We stopped trying to deter him, and we simply said, Let the will of the Lord be done. And so Paul's um, influence, even on these guys, was, Look, he's completely surrendered to the Lord. No matter the consequences, we should be as well. Uh, Paul here is doing things purposefully. Uh, I wonder how, how much of what we do, we do it on purpose. All right, are, are our lives built around purpose? Think about that. Do we purposefully um, serve alongside others? So Paul, we see him here, he's discipling others. Is, are these things a priority for us? Do we purposefully disciple other people? That's what we see, that's the pattern we see. All right, second pattern is a commitment to knowing and applying Scripture. So number two, pattern number two, a commitment to knowing and applying Scripture. Now, verse 17 uh, they finally get to Jerusalem. It says uh, Luke writes, "When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he knows again. He knows these guys. He stops at their church. He's talking with all the leaders. Here's what God's done. He's giving a report of it." And so they then uh, report to him some of the things that they had heard about him, some of the things that were being said about him. So uh, look at verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So in other words, God's not saving just the Gentiles. He's saving the Jews too. Um. And then the end of verse 20, they are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Now, you have to sort of think, so let's try to, let's try to make sense of this. You have to sort of think about uh, how big of a deal it would be for the Jews to all of a sudden be told 
hey, nothing Moses said matters anymore. So it would, like, it would be like us being told, um, hey, that New Testament that you follow has been replaced and there's something more important in its place. It would be similar to, uh, to that for us. Well, that would be pretty startling, right? So these Jews are like, what do we, what do, we do? Uh, you know, what, what's to be done about this? And so what they, what they decide, and, and um, if you read through the whole rest of the conversation, um, they urge Paul, they say, look, uh, we have four, um, four men, verse 23, do therefore what we tell you, we have four men who are under a vow, take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. So what they're talking about here is a kind of Old Testament uh, purification. It was a way for them to make sure that these guys were purified so that they could go to the temple and worship. Uh, this was not something that they had forbidden. So in other words, just because Christ had now come, it was, this was something that they were still, um, that they thought best to do. And so this was, it was kind of a test, I think. So they're saying, Paul, is it, you know, if this is really important to you that we keep the law, why don't you go and purify yourself in this way? And so you understand they're kind of having to figure out What's the best way to understand and apply the Bible? Now, let's, let's ask this for ourselves. Do you suppose it's still important for us to figure out amongst ourselves the best way to interpret and understand and apply the Bible? Does that sound relevant for us? I think it is. Of course, to live out the truth, we have to know it, right? Uh, so I think the challenge for us is how well do we know it? And how well can we uh, display it to others? How well can we put it into practice in a way that uh, shows God's character to others in the way that we live it. So that's the second pattern is a commitment to knowing and applying Scripture. Here's the third pattern. Consistency in the face of adversity. Number three, consistency in the face of adversity. So sure enough, they go through these purifications. Verse 27 says, uh, when the seven days were almost completed, seven days of purification, the Jews from Asia, seeing Paul in the temple stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Um, isn't this exactly what his friends predicted would happen? It is, right? So that's, that's interesting. They laid hands on him, verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and against the law and against this place, the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks, Gentiles, into the temple and has... Thus defiled this holy place. And they said this, verse 29, because they'd previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that, that Paul had brought him into the temple. They supposed, right? So they're, they're making accusations even just based on what they, what they think. Now, what's very interesting is um, they're making all these accusations against Paul. It's almost like they're looking for things about him that they can uh, pick apart and can arrest him for. So sure enough, the, the scene goes on, and they actually, uh, this mob comes, and they arrest Paul, and he doesn't even speak. You don't even hear him say anything. It's, he's just kind of like, okay, they told me this is going to happen, so I'll just go along with it. And he goes along with it all the way down to about verse 37 when they haul him off, and they kind of settle the crowds down, and look at verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, the man, um, one of the um, civil authorities there, he says, may I say something to you? And, and so, he, so again, Paul's not like, 
hey, I demand better treatment than this. He's just like, hey, could I talk to you? And so you see Paul being very uh, consistent. He doesn't get defensive. Uh, They're bringing all these false accusations against him. Now, again, think about how this would apply to us. Uh, When you and I are falsely accused, what's our natural reaction? Usually to try to explain why we're right. We get upset that somebody would think ill of us. Uh, And yet Paul is just really very, he's like, okay, I knew this was going to be hard. I'll just keep my mouth shut until I can have a calm conversation with somebody. Uh, he's, that's the third pattern we see is, is that he's consistent in the face of adversity. All right, here's the fourth thing. When he does get a chance to speak, he has, number four, an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Number four, an emphasis on the sovereignty of God. So, Chapter 22, he finally gets a chance to address the crowd, and he explains how he came to Christ. Uh, Now keep in mind, these are Jewish people that he's talking to. They think he's a heathen because he's associating with Gentile people. So he's going to explain, look, I serve the same God as you. I even serve the Jewish Messiah, is is how he's going to explain it. So he starts, look at verse 3. So chapter 22, verse 3. He starts, he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, a teacher they would have respected, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, and I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. So he goes into this whole history of, look, I'm as zealous for the things of God as you are. So he's, he's getting them on the same page. But then he explains his meeting on the road to Damascus with Jesus. Verse 7, um, I, I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Uh, the voice, of course, was the voice of Jesus. Uh, look, at verse, look at verse 10. He's, he's recounting this to the, uh, to the crowd. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Appointed is a word that would imply that there's a plan already in place. That God uh, is, has worked all this out. God has sovereignly allowed and permitted and ordained all of this to happen. Uh, this, this is, this is um, the way that Paul uh, emphasizes what has happened to him. Look down even at verse uh, 14, at the way that uh, Ananias spoke to, uh, to Paul. Verse 14, he says, I came to Ananias and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. Again, he's saying this is all God's plan. This is all God's plan. Look at verse 22, the other thing he was um, appointed to do. And he said, uh, sorry, this is verse 21. Acts twenty two twenty one, 21. Uh, and the Lord said to Paul, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Okay, now this, this would answer the question, why is Paul associating with Gentiles? All right, let's answer that. Why is Paul associating with Gentiles? Who told him to? The Lord did, right? I'm sending you to the Gentiles. You'll be my witnesses to the Gentiles. So Paul says, listen, I serve the same God as you do, 
And you're accusing me of defiling uh, myself in this place with Gentiles, but that's what God told me to do. All right? Look at verse 22, the way they reacted. Up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices, and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So, things are getting even more adverse for him. And yet, here's the fifth pattern we see. Number five. He has an understanding of the culture and society. He has an understanding of the culture and society. So, um, the crowd again gets upset. Um, they, they bring him to, uh, to the Romans. And they say, we need this man to be flogged. And so they're about to flog him. Look at verse 25. When they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, and again, I just, the way it reads is like, he just sounds so cool and collected, okay? He says, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And it's like they, it's like they get caught with their pants down, uh, figure of speech. And uh, because the guy says, he says, uh, verse 26, When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. And so they go and question him. Are you a Roman citizen? Yes. The tribune's like, look, I became a citizen because I paid the, you know, paid the fee. And Paul says, the end of verse 28, I am a Roman citizen by birth. So he, it's not like he's an outsider who paid a tax. He was born a citizen. And immediately they, re- they withdrew from him. Verse 29 says that they were afraid because they even had arrested this guy who's uncondemned. So you, you see that Paul even knows the way his culture works, the way the society works. He knows the laws. Uh, he's, he's winsome in that way to point out the flaw in their plan. He knew the way things were supposed to work. Uh, I think it's good for us to also just, just know how society works and know what know how to... Uh, use those things as a way to testify to the Lord. That's the fifth pattern. Uh, here's number six. Number six, Paul's uh, sixth pattern is that there was a humility to admit wrong. Humility to admit wrong. It might sound up to this point like I'm just praising Paul for being some great guy. He was. He was a great guy, but we're not trying to make him the hero of the story because he had faults, right? Paul's not perfect. Uh, And we see an example of that at the beginning of 23, beginning of chapter 23. So first verse says, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've um, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And here's Paul's response. Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? And he's pointing out his, his hypocrisy. And, and look, at, look, at, look at how this goes pretty horribly wrong. Verse 4 says, Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? It's as if they're saying, Do you know who you're talking to? This is, this is God's high priest. And immediately, look at Paul's response. Verse 5, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written... You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. All right, so let's, again, think about 
how how it plays out. Uh, was the guy wrong for just ordering Paul to be punched in the face for no reason? Yes. He was, right? Was Paul's reaction good or not good? I suppose it could have been worse, but but not good, right? We got to be honest. Uh, and yet he's he uh, he's confronted with it, and he and he's humble about it, right? He admits, "I did wrong. I broke this law." Um, and and, and he, in that way, he kind of stooped to their level. So it's an important lesson of obviously respecting those who are in control and being godly, even when we uh, disagree with them, and when we're wrong, admitting such and doing it humbly and confessing our sins and faults before others. So we see that in Paul as well. Here's the seventh pattern, is that Paul seemed to have perceptive wisdom. Perceptive wisdom. So he's still in the, he's still in the, before the council, the Jewish council. And look at verse six. When Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, so you've got two, um, not competing, I guess, but two, uh, denominations, we'll say, uh, in the same room, both condemning him. He cri- he says in the council, he cried out in the council, middle of verse 6, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. So you can see already he's kind of like picking sides. I'm a son of the Pharisees, and it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. All right? Now here's, here's a set. Let me paraphrase sort of what he says. He says, I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Is that basically true? Yes, because he believed in the resurrection of Jesus, right? And that's what he was preaching. Now, the, the reason that that was so perceptive of him is because the Pharisees, of which Paul was one, believe, yeah, that's fine, God raises the dead. The Sadducees, guess what they don't believe in? Resurrection. They don't believe people can come back from the dead. So immediately, you've got the two groups now arguing against Paul. The Pharisees are like, ah, he, you know, this guy might be okay. And the Sadducees are like, Upset, you know, with the other group, and they're and they're crying, and you know, they. It says verse nine that a great clamor arose. They contended sharply. The Pharisees admit verse nine. We don't find anything wrong with this man, uh, and and verse ten says that the, that the dissension became violent, and the and the tribune who was afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from those. Uh, take, taken away from among them by force and bring him to the, the barracks. Now, in doing that, again, you have to understand what Paul is accomplishing. He's showing that his stance, his view, his beliefs was actually more sensible than any of theirs. That what he believed was more consistent than any of those two, two groups. So, again, I think for us, it's worth considering are we confident enough in the truth that when it's compared to other alternatives, we can speak wisely about it and, and do so in an unafraid way? Here's the last thing, the last pattern we see. Number eight, Paul had courage when threatened. Courage when threatened. Uh, this, this takes us to the end of chapter 23. Look at verse 11, Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul's in Jerusalem now, but would he die in Jerusalem? No, he would eventually get to Rome. 
And so Paul then could be comforted. He could take courage because no matter what opposition was going to come to him in Jerusalem or anywhere else, as he would be fine until he made it to Rome. Now, it might be for us, we would be like, you know, if the Lord would come and stand by me and assure me that I'm going to make it to such and such a place or such and such an age, I would take comfort in that as well. Um, we won't go into a lot of details, but in the rest of Acts 23, uh, you see Paul's life being threatened, and they have to actually take him out of Jerusalem to Caesarea. And, and yet, in spite of all that cruelty that he faces, he's able to have confidence because he can trust God's promises. Now, again, God's promises to us may not ever be that specific. And yet, shouldn't God's promises to us that we find in Scripture give us a fair amount of courage for the things that we face? And I think they can. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Um, there's, a, there's a missionary family um, who recently was... Uh, who recently moved to Togo, and they're with ABWE. And, of course, we have uh, folks from here who've been sent to Togo. And so this family uh, was going to work to work with them. Well, they have, I think, four or five children. They have an 11-year-old daughter among them. The 11-year-old daughter, as soon as they moved to Togo, uh, she began to feel sick. And she, um, so they, they did some testing, and they find they found out uh, that she has a pretty aggressive form of cancer. And so this girl, I think she was 10 at the time when she was diagnosed, and so they had just lived in, in Togo for uh, a pretty short time. You know who I'm talking about, I think, right? Uh, her name's Arwen, and yes, she's named after Arwen in The Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, so uh, she's, she's 11 now, and they've, they've come back to the States, and she's receiving treatment, and they hope to be able to go back to Togo Eventually, but her um, diagnosis is pretty uncertain. They're really not sure whether these treatments will be all that, um, you know, will be effective, whether or not they'll bring about the healing. And so she has um, put, in some of her, put some of her story into writing. And this is, this is one thing that she has said about her, um, about her sickness. She has said, she's 11 years old, she has said, God will heal me either way. Either here or in heaven, I will be healed. Now, that's a, that's a remarkable amount of courage for anybody. But for this girl, who is so sure of God's eternal promises to her, that in the midst of this uh, deadly disease, she understands, I'm going to be healed. Like, I'm going to be okay. Uh, it might not be here. It might be in heaven. And, and in the midst of all that adversity, she's showing this courage. Now, uh, I want to close with two statements about suffering, and especially about the suffering of Jesus. Uh, so I think you've got these in your notes. Let's, let's mention them uh, quickly. First of all, Jesus' suffering is exemplary. Jesus' suffering is exemplary. Uh, I know that might be kind of a big word. E X. E-M-P-L-A-R-Y. Basically, it means it sets an example. I don't know if you caught on to it, but those patterns that you saw of Paul, the discipleship, the um, understanding of Scripture, the consistency in the face of adversity, the emphasizing God's sovereignty, the, the wisdom, the perceptiveness, 
the courage. Wasn't that the pattern that Jesus set even as he went to the cross? It was, right? With, with the exception of needing to admit he was wrong, because Jesus was never wrong, you see all of those things set by Jesus, uh, exemplified by Jesus on the way to the cross. Jesus made it clear, if the world hates you, know that they hated me first. So Paul's suffering and the suffering of every believer is going to follow a similar pattern to that of Jesus. So Jesus' suffering in that way is exemplary, but it doesn't just set an example. Here's the second thing, and this is another big word, so bear with me. But Jesus' suffering is substitutionary. Substitutionary. S-U-B-S-T-I-T-U-T-I-O-N-A-R-Y. Substitutionary. Which means... Which means that Jesus' suffering uh, was such that he substituted himself in our place so that our sufferings don't have to go on forever. Yes, our sufferings a lot of times will mirror his, but they will be temporary because he has taken eternal punishment from us. So, on his way to the cross and at the cross, Jesus put himself in your place. Uh, he has died the death that you and I deserve to die, and he conquered death. He rose from the grave to ensure that the grave also will not hold us. So whatever sufferings we may face, the worst thing that will ever happen to us is that we die. And after that, the sufferings are no more. Right? So there's a courage and a confidence that we can have. Now, so, so, so don't shy away from pain uh, when it means following Jesus and submitting to his will. Because whether in pain or in comfort, uh, we, we can set a pattern of what it means uh, to follow Jesus in everything. So, pray that that's what we'll do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this example of the life of Paul. Thank you for the way he didn't shy away from adversity, but he stood fast in it, trusting uh, in you trusting in the example that Christ had set before him. Lord, I pray that whatever sufferings we may be called to endure, that we will also do so in such a way that is able to display Christ to others and show others that uh, we share in Christ's sufferings um, because of the example he set for us, but also because we are confident that he put himself in our place so that we don't have to suffer forever. So Lord, I pray our faith will be strong uh, in Christ, and we pray in His name. Amen.